Thank you, my friend. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. I hope your heart's full of the joy of the Lord. There's a lot of reasons to be joyful. I hope you're counting your blessings and naming them one by one every day. The Lord would have us do that. It is a, certainly a spiritual discipline. I, I know that you folks are participating in that discipline. And I'm excited to see what God has for us from his word uh, today. All right. Uh, let's pray. Lord, help us as we dig into these handful of verses that the Spirit of God would illuminate the significance of Scripture to our hearts, to the person, and then to our body. Hear a grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's look at verses 13 to 15 today. Let's read those together and then we'll back up and continue to move along here. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. My heart resonates with Paul's spirit in 2 Corinthians. The Corinthian church responded to Paul's first letter. It was a hard letter. What more could encourage a pastor's heart than to hear that his sheep are responding in truth and any shepherd is fully aware because of how Satan tempts his own life, that his sheep will also be tempted. And consequently, Paul knows that even though the Corinthians have responded well, that the wicked one will seek to continue to upend their growth in Christ-likeness. So he writes this to this vulnerable group of growing believers to bolster their hearts with comfort, confidence, and commissioned living. The last two times we were together, we investigated several, several particular ways in which Paul continued to layer encouragement towards continued growth for the Corinthians. And in verse 7, he taught them that they have a glorious reality. We are having this treasure in earthen vessels, this invaluable gospel message of Jesus we carry with us when we're born again while we endure while we endure in these fragile earthen bodies, this message underpins us with tremendous resolve to live the Christian Christ-like life even while we are enduring much difficulty. And we realize our exclusive explanation as to why we are not destroyed while enduring this affliction is because of the greatness of the power of God that is within us and not of ourselves. And we have a divine resilience also. We recall this profound statement from the last time we studied this passage. It is the unconquerable life of the risen Jesus within that enables his servants willingly and perpetually to be handed over to death for his sake in order that the same life of Christ may be kindled in the hearts of others, enabling them to turn and win others. And this is the chain of faith which 
in a true succession from the apostles is unbroken through the ages. And our resilience is again the greatness of the power of God and the gospel as we embrace Christ and the actual life he lived to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. You know, in the world's eyes, as we said last time, you may be losing your life. But Jesus said, whoever will lose their life for my sake will find it. Christ is being formed in you. Allow that to continue to happen as we grow in Christ's likeness. So before we move on to the passage before us today, is your life about the resilience of gospel mission? Is your life, as you live the life of Christ, influencing others to see Christ being formed in you? And as we progress to the conclusion of chapter 4, Paul moves forward explaining to each of us what this spiritual resilient life is and what it does. It is important to be reminded of and then to notice um, one thing before we explore our outline for this morning, and that's this. All of our existence is underpinned with the surpassing greatness of the power of God. That's true. That's a constant. But notice here Paul's continued usage of plural personal pronouns. Anything and everything in the believer's life that they explore is never to be done alone. It's not only with God, it's also with others. And knowing the surpassing greatness of the power of God in the gospel, gospel living is only experienced as we do gospel ministry together. Paul's saying, if you want to remain vulnerable, go ministry alone. Do it alone. It's really not ministry anyway. You have to understand that, folks. Ministry done alone or exclusively for your intentional selfish purposes is really actually not ministry. Ministry empowered by God is ministry done among the we and not the me. Hang on to this truth again as we explore our passage together this morning. We may never hear the word uncertain or uncertainty as much ever again in our lives as we have in 2020. Our souls have been laid low with the unpredictability of life in general. But on the converse, our passage this morning preaches certainty to the vulnerable yet growing Christian. Again, it's certainty of an enduring kind because it's fueled by the surpassing greatness of the power of God. There are certainties that can join themselves to our daily spirit-filled existence, and they are to be experienced, and they are to be enjoyed by all of us. And here they are. The first one's found in verse 13. It's the certainty of our gospel voice. The certainty of our gospel voice. We've already read this text. We'll unpack it here as we move forward, as we remember that God's grace always supplies our ability to have a voice for the gospel. A faith fueled by the power of God cannot remain silent during 
and certainly after the suffering affliction, suffering of affliction. So Paul explains by cross-referencing an Old Testament passage from Psalm 116. He says, but having this same spirit of faith according to what's been written, basically what he's saying is here, uh, the psalmist who wrote a hymn of thanksgiving for being delivered from inevitable death, that same spirit of thanksgiving we have in our New Testament church context as God has been faithful to deliver us from difficulty just as he did the psalmist. Let's go back to Psalm 116. Let's read the first 10 verses. And verse 10 kind of gives us the um, exact wording or a phrasing of the wording that we find here in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Psalm 116, and let's begin reading in the first verse. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. Verse 3, the cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of the grave or of Sheol came upon me. And I found distress and sorrow. He's really describing here a near-death experience where he actually thought death was certainly inevitable. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said, there it is. You can cross-reference 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 13 right there. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my, my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 now. The language the songwriter uses is indeed the language of a life and death experience. In other words, death was imminent, and the only explanation he's alive is that God saved him. Literally, Paul's saying here, the spirit of faith that I have is according to what has been written by the psalmist. I believed, therefore I spoke. I also, as well as the psalmist, believe, and therefore I also will speak. It is usual with the New Testament use of the Old Testament, that the contexts are similar. What we see here is Paul associating his ministry experience with the faithfulness of God that the psalmist experienced, having been brought from a near-death experience to health once again. We noted the last time we were together several times, and uh, Paul explicitly tells of his hardships and even near-death experiences. We studied 
one of these descriptions in the four paradoxes of verses 8 and 9. You remember those paradoxes well. So he couples a personal health experience of the psalmist in verse 13 with his difficult ministry experience in verses 8 and 9. Why? Why does he do this? To show that in either extreme, life or death, God is faithful to ensure his will for your life is never undercut by difficult experience and God's divine power in fulfilling his will in your life is never shut off while you are feeling shut down. And my friend, the text says it is written. This truth is preserved for our learning. Recorded in the inspired, preserved word of God is this promise, both Old and New Testaments. It kind of reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where Paul wrote years earlier. Faithful is he who has called, it, called you who also will bring it to pass. God's eternal purpose for your life is consistent. It's divinely consistent. From what he decreed your life would be before the foundations of the world existed. And he's faithful to make sure that that eternal purpose is seen through. And we endure, bearing about the dying of the Lord Jesus in our bodies and the uncertainty that may bring our lives and the certainty we will know that God is faithful in each and every circumstance to show himself stronger than you stronger than even the necessary collective us to help carry you through. As you have life to live and air to breathe, it is God's certain will that you are living and you have eternal purpose. It is quite easy in our human nature to lose sight of spiritual eternal purpose when uncertainty and the ensuing unpredictability abounds. Spurgeon said that the furnace of affliction is a good place for us, Christian. It benefits you. It helps you become more like Christ, and it is fitting you for heaven. Yes, that certainty is true. We can attach many scripture verses to that reality, and we already have, but persevering by grace does not always merely include a passive willingness to be developed by grace and to be fit for heaven. It must also include an act of obedience, Paul declares in this text, which was his reality and the reality of the psalmist, and he wants the Corinthians to join him. You see, vulnerable people are often spiritually shy when they are enduring difficulty while experiencing newfound growth. And that's understandable, but should not remain the pattern of their lives. Paul moves forward to explain the certainty of the Lord's care for us includes a passive and an active development of you and me when he states, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we speak. There's something we individually realize and then invite others to do with us here. Believing and speaking, folks, theologically have always been two essential aspects of our salvation. Paul said, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, then he's risen from the grave, you will be saved. 
from the time of our new birth and throughout our Christian experience, when the Holy Spirit develops us in Christ's likeness by growing us in ways only he can do, our hearts want and ought to speak. It can be as, as easily, it can be as, as simple as being blessed in your devotions and desiring to share that with your spouse or with your children, or with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or with your friend. It can be as simple as testifying to the church what God has taught you in his word. To speak to your disciple the blessings of your growing faith as you come to know and have a deeper relationship with God's word. And in our context, the gospel rarely has more power than when one proclaims how only the Lord brought them out of the valley of the shadow of physical death to life again by his power and by the word of God, so we speak of him. We speak of him. When you've seen the Lord, when you have seen the Lord empower you to endure through pain and affliction, you must proclaim what he's done to others right around you. Then you must, by your example, Model and ask another in the flock to go with you, speaking of how the Lord has done the same in their lives. The certainty of the speech of not merely surviving, but persevering saints is divine health to the flock. It remains a healing balm to the soul of the church and to its discipling members, for the saint endures degrees of affliction with eternal gospel purpose. And we must know what the Lord's doing in our lives. This, this little immediate context gave me a lot more um, encouragement in relationship to what we studied back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Let's read that together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to what? Speak! <laughs> so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So I have to wonder, expanding into the context of chapter 2 that we've already preached upon, is the comfort we receive from God as spoken from the people of God necessary encouragement that we need to live in the gospel triumph Paul speaks of in chapter 2? And I say yes. There is no persevering well in the gospel triumph we preached of weeks ago unless we are speaking the comfort of God to one another and persevering together as the we and not the me in this whole thing. You will find it most difficult to be part of gospel triumph if you're enduring through affliction alone and not being progressed by the power of God to recognize his care for you and then the sharing of that care to somebody else in the flock and then to the body. There must be that natural process of biblical communication, of speaking for the body as a whole, let alone you, to know gospel progress in our own town, in our own community, in your own family in your own family. 
So this is the certainty of our gospel voice. Every one of us have endured or is enduring some degree of difficulty, especially this year, right? What's God shown you through his word to keep you persevering? Some of you in this room have actually been at death's door this year. And there's really no explanation as to why you're even here. Well, we found out from the psalmist in 2 Corinthians 4 why you're here. God did it. God did it. What did God show you in his word when you were at the threshold of breathing your last? This flock needs to hear that. Your disciple is a disciplee. You need to share that with each other. We don't survive well in the progress of the gospel unless there's this interdependent sharing of the comfort of God in these difficult times. This is the certainty of our voice. So as Christians growing in Christ-likeness, we really shouldn't be remaining on our heels, always remaining shy, well, I have really nothing to say. Yes, you do, and yes, you should! Some of you have lost a parent this year a child this year. If you haven't been at death's door, you've been at death's door with someone who's passed. What did God show you in his word? How did God take you from the depths of discouragement to persevering in Christ's likeness? What text did he use? That needs to be shared. With somebody and if there's no text and there's no somebody to share with it friend you're not really enjoying Christian perseverance bless your heart <laughs> it's got to be shared we have a voice there's a second certainty here in verse 14 the certainty of the believers regathering there's a lot of motivation as to why we progress in difficulty so many of us are missing the gathering of families for the holidays this year, aren't we? That's painful and completely unnatural, isn't it? It makes us long even more for this time next year, or maybe even in the spring or summer when meeting with whole families can be done and should be done. There's nothing like the, the gathering of family for holidays or special occasions. And as our hearts are developed by God's grace, we increasingly long to be reunited with God's people in the clouds when Christ returns. We may face breathing our last in the sight of heaven, and to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, to be sure. But why can a believer even face his final enemy, death, which with such certainty and confidence... Well, because of the certainty of the resurrection and regathering with the saints of the church at the appearing of Christ. You see, because of the resurrection, even in death, the believer has a voice. It's the voice, of the testimony of their grace-transformed life and their spirit-emboldened speech while they lived. We've discussed that. 
that our collective voice, even in death, screams the virtues of omnipotent grace, even as there will be those who eulogize our lives at our home going, who may say, yes, there was something different about him or her. No, I'm not talking merely about the good deeds they did or the kindness that they modeled. I'm talking about how and why they did what they did. Everything was about Jesus and for Jesus. Their faith in their resurrected, forever alive Jesus fueled their living and their speaking. And so it was for Paul who spoke and proclaimed the gospel with utmost confidence and with firm conviction because he was assured of his own resurrection. What does he say here in verse 14? We've already read, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Again, keeping track of those plural pronouns. Because of the promise given to the saints due to the resurrection of Christ, Paul was certain of his own resurrection and presentation of the saints to Christ in the clouds. Years ago, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. To another afflicted, very vulnerable, yet growing church, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The scripture teaches that the resurrected Christ forms the prototype or the ground of their resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But each in his own order, the text says, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Someone said in Christ's resurrection from the dead, as the firstfruits of the Easter harvest, believers have the pledge of the full ingathering of the saints at the coming of Christ. He will raise us up. He will. And he will present us together with Christ. This language of presentation in the New Testament is profound. We see it in Acts chapter 23 where Paul is presented to the governor of Caesarea. We see it in the same book we're studying in chapter 11 and verse 2 where Paul teaches, I espoused you to one husband that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul says it again in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27. This picture of a bride being presented to the bridegroom is found again where Christ is spoken of presenting the church to himself as his bride. And the ultimate purpose of Christ in redemption is explained in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 22 as being to present his redeemed, holy, and without blemish and unreproachable saints before God. And the apostles' ministry is closely bound up with this purpose, for his preaching ministry is closely also bound up with this purpose, to present every man perfect in Christ. Yes, we all will be presented together before Christ, 
in the divine regathering of resurrected saints at the end of this age when Jesus returns in the clouds. And what a glorious, incredible day that will be. And it's certainly going to happen. And we persevere because of that promise. There's an old hymn we haven't sung in years here. It may not even be in our hymn book. I don't know. It really doesn't matter. It goes like this. Jesus may come today, and I would see my friend. Dangers and troubles would end if Jesus would come today. I may go home today. Seemeth I hear their song, hail the radiant throng, if I should go home today. Why should I anxious be? Lights do appear on the shore. Storms will affright nevermore, for he is at hand today. Faithful I'll be today, and I will freely tell why I should love him so well, for he is my all today. And you know the chorus, glad day, glad day. It is the crowning day. I'll live for today, nor anxious be. Jesus, my Lord, I soon shall see. Glad day, glad day. It is the crowning day. We live with certainty because of the promise of our resurrection as we will experience the resurrection that Christ did. And this certainty of resurrection for Paul fueled his personal ministry to the saints and his passion for the spread of the gospel. Resurrection was such a tangible reality to Paul, and it should be for us. It was no mystery to him. This hope of resurrection compels us. It thrusts us towards living the life that Christ lived. It purifies us and prepares us to be presented pure and faultless before him at his coming. It's the hope that we realize now that compels us together to prepare one another for this imminent reality. And I'll just finish this point by simply asking you a question. Are you preparing somebody in addition to yourself to be presented faultless before the throne? And what's their name? We do this together. Go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at Paul's heart for the together of the saints. We've mentioned to this you over and over, but the book of 1 Thessalonians has five chapters, and each chapter concludes with the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so chapter 2 presents for us one of those, and he says in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 2, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, we, all the, we are all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. 
Do you feel that way about each other? And does that drive you to prepare each other to see Jesus today? I ask you, my dear saint in Christ, who are you connected with inside and outside your home in this local church? Preparing you for that trumpet. Who are you with? Who are you preparing? And are you being prepared for the certainty of this imminent reality? And in verse 15, we find our third and final surety, all by God's grace. As you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me this morning. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause you to give thanks to abound to the glory of God. Every pastor and every spirit-filled church member longs to have Christ build the church and not man. Right? We gladly resign our hearts to the reality that often Christ does build the church in times of affliction as well as in times of peace, but how do we know we're a part of Christ building his church even when times are tough? The Apostle Paul is about to give us here three irreducible minimums of how we participate in Christ building his church, whether we're in times of peace or difficulty. And they're all fueled by his grace, and the text tells us, tells us that. And we ask ourselves also, why would he, or could he even use this broken earthen vessel to be part of him building his church? To be a part of God's glorious building of, of his precious church. Well, being a part of this glorious and certain process is all of grace. The text says it. Don't you see that? For all things are for your sakes, so that the what? The grace. Grace is positioned grammatically in this text to remind us that the, it is the very power of God that uses us to build his church in these ways. And grace is operational when, first of all, the first of these three things under this certainty of purely gospel-motivated progress. The first of three is simply our hearts for ministry are to be aligned with Christ's selfless heart. He says here, for all things are for your sakes. You've got a cross-reference here. Verse 11, a few verses earlier. What does it say there in verse 11? For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. The context ties both for your sakes and Jesus' sake together. And both can only be comprehended within this setting. Jesus, who thought it not robber to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, was made in the likeness of man, Philippians 2 tells us. He did so to selflessly be obedient even in the death of the cross. And Paul selflessly 
was bearing about the dying of the Lord Jesus in his body, the context tells us. And all that Paul did was to humbly and selflessly take on the mind of Christ and to minister to the Corinthians. And his heart for them was to do the same. Philip Hughes says, there is no hint of self-interest in view of the perfect atoning sacrifice of Christ and no other suffering in any degree contribute to man's salvation. And there's no suggestion of self-centeredness or of isolating individualism. The true follower of Christ is Christ-centered and for Jesus' sake, and after his example, gladly spends himself and is spent for the sake of his fellow Christian. Selflessness is fueled by grace. It's fueled by the power of God. Selflessness even in the depths of affliction. To be selfless, to be humbly selfless, is to be certainly and purely motivated in gospel progress. The second virtue is found here. Where it says here that it's not only done for your sakes, it says here that grace is spreading to more and more people. Our lives are given here for the gospel so it could be spread to more and more people. I know your hearts are thrilled when new birth announcements are sent out via email. And these new birth announcements and the attending selfless personal shepherding of these souls is the certain ministry that guarantees us we have a ministry of integrity. As you wait and prayerfully long to reach a soul for Christ, your selfless, sacrificial, spiritual reproduction of God's will from yourself and the life of another believer, while you continue to pray that you might be able to win someone to Christ, is ministry integrity. This for Paul is a local church Corinthian application. He's poured out his life for them as Christ poured out his life for him. And now he sees the vulnerable yet obedient Corinthians beginning to do the same for each other unto others who have yet to come to know Christ. You who are living this life are most certainly living the life that Christ lived. And you're living it with ministry integrity. The local church knows no ministry integrity of godlike success unless they are selflessly realizing grace spreading to more and more people. We have our Christmas offering. Why? So that your selfless, sacrificial lives, even in the form of worshipful giving, so the gospel could be spread to more and more people. But don't ever forget, folks, the more and more people starts right in your own Jerusalem. You know that God is using your life of ministry integrity if you are humbly seeking and praying for those in your own homes in which you live to be saved if they don't know Jesus yet. Right in your own personal spiritual Jerusalems. 
There's a certainty that God is using you to build his church if you have that burden for grace to operate in your lives to reach those who are closest to you who don't know Christ. And then to your friends. And then be praying for the person you're discipling with for their unsafe family and their unsafe friends. Grace operates through selfless ministry unto gospel progress so that what can be done? So that the final phrase here can be done. So that thanksgiving may abound to the glory of God. I don't control who gets saved and who doesn't. I'll let God take care of that. Every time you come to a gospel context in the New Testament, it becomes abundantly clear that God is still saving people. (laughs) Right? I was told by a ministry mentor of mine years ago that God only saves people during times of revival. Okay? Because I respected the man, I didn't argue with him, being 30 to 40 years his junior. But I struggled with that in my soul because Jesus said he would build his church. Paul wanted to go to Corinth originally because he said there's many people that God's given us in this city. We are still alive and remaining as a local church because there's still people, and I know you know this, in your neighborhoods and in our towns and in Northeast Ohio that are yet to be saved who will be saved. And this is, this is the reality of the certainty of our existence as God uses us to build his church. And as they come to know Christ, we have, a, we have a, an obligation, and it's not much of an obligation, it's a joy to to constantly have this refrain of thanksgiving upon our lips unto God for saving people and giving them by a transformed life the ability to actually live his glory, to to live his character. Tasker said the more people who come to know the grace of God through the gospel Paul preaches, the more numerous will be the thanksgivings that will be evoked and the greater the praise will be offered to God. So yes, Lord, we give thanks to you for the new birth that you've given to us here at Grace Church. And we long to selflessly give our lives as Christ did towards the cause of seeing many more come to know your mercy and your grace as they're shown in the sacrifice of Christ their need for forgiveness. What's the first line of our mission statement? Grace Church of Mentor exists to glorify God. That's how the text ends. The glory of God is really the goal in all of this that the Lord does to use us as clay pots 
to persevere in ministry integrity even during times of affliction. But we glorify God by doing what? Evangelizing the lost. That's what you do. And equipping the saints, which is what we do with you, with the goal of Christ-likeness. Our final point today was the certainty of knowing purely motivated gospel progress. How do we know? Well, there's those three things. It's actually that simple. Doxological ministry, ministry that abounds to the glory of God, involves the selfless giving of each other in the interpersonal spiritual development and the gradual consistent spread of the gospel to our city and our area, one soul at a time, and always remembering to live the life of thanksgiving to God for what we are seeing him do in building his church. So if you're newer to grace, welcome. We're elated that you're here or that you've been coming. But if you really want to know what a Bible-believing church is and what she does in times of affliction or in times of peace, you've just heard it outlined this morning. It's that simple. This is how we know. This is the certain thing that we can do. And we invite you, of course, to join what Jesus is doing to simply but profoundly build his church for the members of grace who are feeling quite vulnerable this year. Even though it's a year of exceptional tumult and uncertainty, I want you, whether joining by live stream or present, to embrace the certainty of these three things. We've got to be pulled from being vulnerable and passive to being vulnerable and active and growing in Christ likeness. You got to be pulled off your heels. You got to be pulled back into fellowship with God, which means fellowship with his people unto the inner development of each other spiritually as we look forward to the resurrection. And as God continues to use us to build his church. These are very certain things that we can and should be doing. And I know most of you are doing. And you are enjoying. Let's continue. Let's continue more and more. To be a certain gospel voice. certainly look forward to the ingathering, the regathering of God's people and allow that certainty of the resurrection to fuel our voice and to be certainly motivated unto pure gospel progress in these, these three simple ways. There's a lot that you can't control in 2020, my friends. You can control this by God's grace alone. So we'll do it together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the simplicity of this text. We thank you for the certainty of this text. It really is only your power, and it really is only your grace in such unique times that can fuel us 
to embrace these truths and to, to live them out in our gospel lives. So thank you for that. The church and her purpose as Christ builds her is never sidelined by any circumstance. We know that, Lord. We know, Lord, this is probably the greatest year of gospel mission in our personal existence. So we march forward humbly, selflessly, together. In these certainties, and we look forward to what you're going to continually do through us by your grace individually and then collectively as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.